If I were to ask you uh, the question, the rhetorical question, uh, what are the greatest challenges facing the church today? The church universal and the local church, the true church. Uh, how might you respond to that question? What are the greatest challenges facing the church? There might be a number of responses. Some might say the greatest challenge that is facing the church today is moral relativism. Uh, the growing belief in our uh, society that there are no moral absolutes. Right? Truth and falsehood, right and wrong, these are not universal. Uh, these are relative. Truth is determined ultimately by a given individual. Others might say, no, the greatest uh, challenge facing the church today is a growing secular society that throughout our history, while the church once played a central, if not the central role in, in shaping and forming the values and norms of culture, the church over time has gotten pushed more and more or allowed itself to be pushed more and more to the peripheral in a secular society. Its voice is no longer heard or accepted. Others might say, no, the greatest challenge is uh, the breakdown of the family, the redefining or efforts to redefine uh, marriage. Or others might say the busyness of the culture in which we live. I, we simply can't keep up with the pace of life today. All of these might be uh, considered quite significant and have tremendous impact on the church, but I would suggest this morning that toward the top of the challenges facing the church, facing all of us, is something in many ways much more internal and something much more even personal. And that's the challenge of self-perception or the challenge of self-identity. In other words, how do I view myself in relationship to the church? How should I view my individual life in relationship to what we call the body of Christ, the family of God, the church? What place, what role should the church play in my life, and what role should I be playing in the life of the church? And I think in Ephesians chapter 4, if you would turn there, Paul helps us shape an answer to that question, an understanding about that great challenge. What is my role in the life of the church today? What ought it to be? Ephesians chapter 4, Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus, verses 1 through 16. Listen now to God's word. Ephesians 4, verse 1. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying that he ascended, what does it mean? But that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth. 
He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, Makes the, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. As Paul writes to the church uh, in Ephesus, he gives to them and, and subsequently he gives to all of us one of the scripture's central, most significant pictures or metaphors in describing the nature of the church. And therefore, describing for all of us our relationship to the church. And that's the picture, the metaphor of the body. I think we should say that the picture of the body is more than a metaphor when we're called the body of Christ. We are truly the body of Christ, spiritually united to him. But it is a metaphor as well. It's a picture. The church is called the body of Christ. We see it in verse 12. The building up of the body of Christ. We see it again in verse 15. We're to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint. Now many of us are perhaps familiar with the picture, the metaphor of the church as a body. Paul goes into even more detail in 1 Corinthians 12 about this body metaphor. Uh, He describes the church in the likeness of a physical body. If you remember there in 1 Corinthians 12, referring to some members individually within the whole body as ears, feet, hands, eyes, all of these different parts working together. And what's so powerful about pictures and metaphors is their ability to help communicate and reinforce truth. And that's what's helpful about the body metaphor. It communicates very powerful truths. And so just at the outset, by way of introduction, I'll mention a few of the truths it helps to communicate that we see supported throughout the Scriptures. For one, the church is united to Christ, our head. And the body metaphor reinforces this. Paul says in verse 15, we're to grow up into the head, into Christ. And so what's so unique about the church is that it is the only organization, it is the only organism defined as having as its head the Lord Jesus Christ. Which means the only people who will have as their head, their ruler, their shepherd, the Lord Jesus, is the church. 
Therefore, to be outside of this body that Paul speaks about is to be separated from the head. One of the most powerful statements I've heard on the doctrine of the church, I've heard just recently, this Christian author said this, The church is not an organization of voluntary, like-minded people, but a body of people ontologically, meaning by nature, by nature, joined to the glorified and risen Christ. The church is not a society of like-minded people who associate with the divine, but the divine society itself, in whom the living God and living Christ dwells. That's powerful. We are not a group of people who merely associate with the divine. In the picture of the body metaphor, we are the divine society, united to Christ himself. So there is something fundamentally different between viewing the church as a community I voluntarily associate with and seeing myself as a part of this divine society indwelt by God himself. Because this society, this community, is spiritually united to the head, who is the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul's communicating just that. There is one body, he says, and there is one head to this body. And that is Jesus Christ. And so this is a helpful picture, the picture of the body. The church is united to the head. I would also say that the body metaphor here, this body picture, also displays the importance of function. As Paul mentions in verse 16, each part working properly, he says, according to the direction of the mind. The head, Christ Jesus. So the body picture helps drive home the idea of uniformity and function, togetherness, team function. I think you see this very clearly when you look at uh, athletes throw a ball. Their mind is working in such a way to direct the rest of the parts of the body all working together to come and know just how far to throw that ball. It's all working together. There's a picture and a sense of function. And I think we should say that with this body picture, there are no parts that ought to be functioning in or working, trying to work in isolation. No one in the body should be thinking, well, I just do my part. I have no worry or concern about any of the other parts. I do my thing. That's not how bodies are to function. Sometimes the left hand has to reach across and scratch the right leg. Right? There's a sense of orientation. How are the other parts of the body working? That's how a, a physical body works. That's why we mourn with those who mourn. Then I would say, thirdly, that metaphors often not only communicate Meaning, but they will often fuel and awaken to action. And certainly the body metaphor fuels and awakens to action. Bodies need to move to work properly. Bodies need to act to function rightly. Or they atrophy. 
Now, later today, you may be aware, you may not be aware. If not, I'll inform you now. Uh, there's a game on this evening. If you're not a sports fan, uh, it's called the Super Bowl. And I think there's a team playing called the Patriots, I believe. Uh, whether you like football or not, whether you plan to watch the game or not is beside the point. For those players taking the field tonight, this is likely the most important, biggest game of their career. One thing is for sure, this is not a pickup game. It's not a pickup game. It's not a casual game made up of players who might happen to show up to play. The only people participating are those on the roster. Those who are selected. Those who are on the team. Those who are wearing the uniform. I would put it this way. Those who have been called. Those who have been called. And when we think about the church, the body of Christ, Paul here wants us to see our place among the body and our commitment to the body as being founded upon a calling. A divine calling. Our place in the body is not founded upon a voluntary participation or a mere act of our will or our personal interest. It may include those things, but Paul wants us to see that our place in the body is founded upon something much, much deeper. It's a calling. In fact, he uses the word calling a number of times in the text. Verse 1. I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Verse 4. Just as you were called, he says, to the one hope that belongs to your call. And that word calling is actually closely related to the New Testament word for church. Ecclesia, meaning called out ones. Well, here, calling that Paul is referring to and that he has in mind is not only being called out, but called to a community. This is a calling to a community, to this divine society. And it's in that very vein that Paul began the letter in the first chapter of Ephesians. Ephesians 1.3 Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. And so Paul wants us not only to see that our faith, our being chosen in Christ, our faith in Christ, and our place in the body of Christ are tied together. He wants us to see those are interwoven. That to have Christ is also to participate in the body of Christ. And that you can't have one without the other. But he also wants us to, wants us to see that in both cases, our faith in him and our place in the body is the result of a call. A divine calling, appointment, and choosing. And so this calling that he mentions, it's a divine, a sacred thing. And I think that the reason there's such a thing today in our culture as a so-called churchless Christianity, if if you've heard that term, people professing faith with no part 
in the body is in part because so many churches are no longer representing or standing for anything worthy of such a calling. So many churches have devolved into a mere social club or institution of community service, but no longer a divine community standing on the convictions of the Word of God, the truth and the truth claims of Jesus Christ Himself. What's the result? The world increasingly is looking right past such churches. They stand for so little. Little conviction. A couple of years ago, while our family was in Scotland, one of the places I wanted to see was Greyfriars uh, Churchyard, or Kirkyard, I should say. It's in the old city of Edinburgh. It's a cemetery containing a number of graves, including a place called the Covenanter Prison. And the Scottish Covenanters were a group of Presbyterians. They were spiritual descendants of John Knox, the founder of Presbyterianism. And in 1638, these men signed a covenant, the National Covenant, at Greyfriars Churchyard. They were committing themselves to uphold, at great cost, true biblical worship as they understood it. And they were resisting allegiance to any earthly king who claimed to rule over the church. That, that Jesus Christ alone has the sole rights over the church. And so this covenant, this commitment led to the imprisonment of hundreds of Protestant believers. And there at the churchyard is a plaque, and it reads this. Behind these gates lies Greyfriars Churchyard, part of which was used as a prison for over 1,000 supporters of the National Covenant. For over four months, these men were held here without shelter, each man being allowed to eat four ounces of bread a day, Some of the men died here, and some were tried and executed for treason. The covenant, first signed in 1638, promised to defend Presbyterianism from intervention by the crown. The remaining 257 men who had been sentenced to transportation overseas were placed on board a ship for the American colonies. Nearly all were drowned when the ship wrecked off the Orkney Islands. The reason these men willingly suffered and gave their lives is because of conviction. They had conviction. They had a sense of calling to a community that would proclaim Christ above any and all earthly rule. They had a conviction. They had a calling to the church, which we remember Paul elsewhere calls the pillar or buttress of the truth. In fact, if you turn back to Ephesians chapter 3, verse 10, Paul says that it is through the church that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known. It is through the church that the manifold wisdom of God is known, that the salvation of God is known. Do you have a calling? Do you have a sense of conviction and calling to the body of Christ? Notice the calling is a calling to action. 
He says, I urge you to walk, in verse 1, or to live in a way worthy of the calling. Uh, Some have suggested that, that there's no passage in the New Testament more descriptive of the church in action than here. And so while the church is called, I want us to see, secondly, that the church is equipped. The church is given gifts for its life. It's equipped. It's gifted. This is verses 7 through 12 of the text. Paul says, But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Paul is teaching something so very important. Something that was reinforced and recaptured by Martin Luther at the Reformation. And that's the priesthood of all believers, what we call the priesthood of all believers. Really, the significance of the individual. That not only do all believers have a priestly role with direct access into the presence of Almighty God, but every believer plays a vital role in the body of Christ with gifts to strengthen the body. Every single one. That's what Paul says. Grace was given to each one of us. And where does Paul get this teaching? He didn't just come up with it himself. He actually reaches back into the Old Testament in Psalm 68. So if you look at verse 8 of our text, he's quoting from Psalm 68. Saying, When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. That's the reference. If Paul's reaching back to Psalm 68, it's helpful for us to know the context of Psalm 68. If you turn to the psalm, I'll read a few of the verses. But the psalm is about the victory of God in leading his people through the wilderness and into the promised land. It's a psalm of David recalling this history of Israel. The victory of God, the provision of God through the wilderness and into the new land. So listen to Psalm 68, verse 6. God settles the solitary in a home. He leads out the prisoners to prosperity. O God, when you went out before your people, when you marched through the wilderness, the earth quaked, the heavens poured down rain. Verse 10. Your flock found a dwelling. In your goodness, O God, you provided for the needy. Verse 12. The kings of the armies, they flee, they flee. The women at home divide the spoil. Verse 17, the chariots of God are twice ten thousand, thousands upon thousands. Verse 18, you ascended on high, this is the verse, you ascended on high leading a host of captives in your train and receiving gifts among men or receiving in order to give gifts to men, even among the rebellious. Verse 20, our God is a God of salvation. Verse 24, your procession is seen, O God. And verse 35, awesome is God who gives power and strength to his people. And here Paul is drawing from verse 18 of that psalm, and he's adapting and applying it to Christ himself. And Paul says, this Christ who descended, who descended, He came in the incarnation, taking on flesh, 
to represent us, His people. And then bearing the cross to atone for our sin. And then rising from the dead, giving us hope beyond the grave. And then ascending to God's right hand to lead us in victory, giving gifts for the building up of the body of Christ. When you read Ephesians 4 in light of Psalm 68, you're reading really a chapter about the victory of God, a victory march. Have you read Psalm or Ephesians 4 in that way? It is a victory march. Reminding us, as Psalm 68 does so well, that not only is Christ triumphant over the enemies of sin and death and evil, but this Christ is on the move. He's on the offense here. He's on the move. He's building. He's equipping. He's gifting His people as He rules over all things. That is how Paul began the letter to the Ephesians in chapter 1, that Christ, Christ has been seated at the right hand of God. Far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, He has put all things under His feet and gave Him as head over all things to the church, which is His body. And so He says, He gave gifts to men. And He mentions some of these. He gave Apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Paul gives attention to particular parts of the body and particular gifts, teaching, shepherding, evangelists. But he also emphasizes, as he says, all the saints doing ministry work, gifts to all parts of the body. Now, during that game tonight, the attention is going to be on who? Probably the quarterback or quarterbacks, wide receivers, running backs. The attention usually is wherever the ball is, where there seems to be excitement or action. And after the game, there's going to be probably what are called the highlights, an amazing pass, an exceptional catch an awe-inspiring run or interception. It's why even if you don't follow very closely football, like myself, you likely know who Tom Brady is. That's the Patriots quarterback if you don't follow football at all. But it's also why you probably have not heard of Andrew Whitworth or Rob Havenstein. At least, I never heard of these guys. I had to look them up. If you do know who, who those guys are, you're, you may be watching too much football. But, <laughs> but y- 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 the reason you know Tom Brady and you don't know these other guys is because these other guys are offensive linemen. Okay? They simply do not get the kind of attention that a quarterback often does. And they're also L.A. Rams, so it doesn't really matter, Right? But what gives a team success? In all seriousness, what gives a team success and what gives the church strength and success is, as Paul says, each part working properly. Each part working properly. 
And I think there's a real freedom in what Paul is saying. There's a freedom for all of us in these words because you do not have to make the whole body work. In fact, no one's looking to you or me to make the whole body work. You're not responsible or called to make it all work. You're called to work the gift or the gifts that God has given to you to benefit, to bless the body of Christ. If it's encouragement, to encourage, or hospitality, to be hospitable. If it's teaching, to teach. If it's giving, to give. If it's helping, help. If it's compassion, be compassionate. If it's shepherding, shepherd well. Of course, we all know sometimes bodies don't function perfectly. We can look at our own physical body. Just three nights ago, I was eating popcorn. Part of my tooth came out. Actually, it doesn't surprise me. I've had a whole string of teeth problems. So. But we have various ailments that we experience in our physical body. We live in a fallen, broken world. Which also means that the body of Christ is going to have ailments and challenges and limps, and various hardships. And so it's not only about using our gift or our gifts. We see the church is called. Uh, we see the church is equipped and being equipped. But then you see throughout this portion of the letter, the church's character that Paul gives great emphasis to. How important is the character of the church? There's two main characteristics that Paul emphasizes that define the people of God here in this, in this portion. The first is unity. He says in verse 1, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. Verse 3, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. And the way that Paul drives home the importance of unity really is by repetition. As he speaks of, in verse 1, this, uh, excuse me, in verse 4, this oneness. Over and over again, he says this. There's one body and one spirit, just as you were called, to the one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. Through repetition, emphasizing the unity and the significance of it. Yet, I think it's important we remember that you and I are living in a day and age in which it's not unity that's most emphasized or celebrated. It is diversity. It's people's differences that are celebrated today in our culture. Religious diversity, cultural diversity, moral diversity. Maybe there's a place for that. The Bible certainly recognizes the importance of diversity. A diversity of gifts, diversity of personality and backgrounds, diversity of race. All the nations will come and worship the Lord and are worshiping the Lord. But it's, it's, it's never diversity for diversity's sake. It's diversity for the purpose of serving unity. And that's what Paul drives home in Galatians 3, for example. There's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male or female. We are one in Jesus Christ. Our children are studying this 
year, the modern era for history. And a while ago, we opened one of the U.S. textbooks and we learned that Latin phrase that helped marked, mark and define our own history in the U.S. E pluribus unum, out of many, one. How are you serving uh, to unify the body of Christ? How might our words be used to strengthen the oneness in the unity of the household of faith? So so there's unity that Paul's emphasizing. And then Paul speaks of love. I urge you to walk worthy of your calling with all humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love. Verse 15, speaking the truth in love, we're to grow up into Christ. Each part working properly makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. I provided for you a a definition of love in your insert from Dan Dan Allender. I think it is so excellent. He says, bold love is courageously setting aside our personal agenda to move humbly into the world of others with their well-being in view, willing to risk further pain in our souls in order to be an aroma of life to some and an aroma of death to others. Biblical love, it is sacrificial. And biblical love is perfectly defined and demonstrated in the meal that we are about to participate in. It's pictured, it's illustrated there for us. True love is demonstrated in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. He moved toward us and gave Himself for us to deliver us from sin and death. We hear these words in closing from the Apostle John in 1 John 4, 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Let's pray together. Father, we praise You for the blessing of the church, the body of Christ. We thank You for Your Son, Jesus, our Lord and Savior, the head of the body, the head of the church, who guides and directs all that we do. We pray that by your grace, you would cause us to yield, not only individually, but cause us to yield together to his lordship, to his headship over us, and that we might find rest and delight and joy in using the gift and the gifts, the way that by your Spirit you have equipped and are equipping us to bless and build up the body. Help us, O Lord, uh, 
to be concerned not only for the use of our gifts, but for all the parts of the body. For as the world uh, watches on, O Lord, we are salt and light. And it is by this love, one for another, uh, that the world will know we are your disciples. Continue, O God, to bless us in our time as we worship you as the one true and living God uh, who has provided uh, an atonement for our sin. Lord, as we celebrate this uh, in our participation in the Lord's Supper. And we pray all these things uh, through Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.